Welcome to Talk Science. Uh, today I'm joined with Professor Matt Wilkinson to talk about his book, Restless Creatures. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks very much. Great to be here. Could you just start by telling us a little bit about what your book is about? Yeah, sure. So it's about um, the evolution of movement or locomotion, so moving from place to place. Um, and the big idea is that this is actually the driving theme of the history of life on Earth. And uh, this has been neglected for a long time, but it's, it's, the point I'm trying to get across is that if the more you kind of understand how things move around, the more you're going to be able to explain why the living world is the way it is. Oh, I see. Um, so there's a great diversity of different ways things live, and uh, somehow that is a, a way to understand uh, life itself. Could you explain a bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So it's, um, I mean, the the thing that kind of drew me to this, uh, as I explained in my introduction, is um, I used to work on uh, pterodactyl flights, and it was uh, this 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 uh, desire to try and explain how they behaved and how they lived uh, that really kind of opened my eyes to this, um, because I reasoned that you know, if, if flight is very difficult, and um, therefore it's going to dominate um, an organism's, uh, a creature's form and the way it behaves just through natural selection that's the idea and um so it would really help if you've only got limited um fragmentary fossils uh if you can kind of understand how they you know, what they're going to have to be like in order to fly um then you can go much much further towards explaining you know what they were doing but that then really opened my eyes to the rest of the world and actually the more i looked the more i realized that would actually the marks of, of of this need to move are everywhere and they um yeah it, it really is it kind of um was very exciting that suddenly i had this this really powerful tool uh, to explain why the living world uh, was as it is hmm. i see so because movement is part of most creatures lives you're saying that the the way the body is formed uh has a lot to do with how it has to be able to move yeah exactly because they're up against the sort of the harsh realities of physics that um there are only you know, if you want to move well um, that's going to dictate a lot about how you're able, you know, what, what your shape's going to be like, how you're going to be, you know, how your muscles are going to work, um, that sort of thing. And so, if you can appreciate how the physics of movement works, then you have this this power to explain why many many things are as they are. I see. Um, but not everything that lives moves. So, how do these things fall into your way of looking at life? Yeah, well, I think because I mean, one of my chapters is sort of focused on plants, actually, which um, they don't move. However, um, they still have this same, this sort of imperative is there, uh, particularly as far as the dispersal of their offspring is concerned. I think that that's a kind of great leveler across the, the entire living world, that it doesn't matter whether you are nominally a mover or a non-mover, you're, the young have to get away from you, otherwise you're just going to end up competing with them. Um, and I think that that need in plants, despite the fact that the, that the plants themselves can't move and the fact that they're on land, um, has actually dominated um, how they've evolved on land every bit as much as it's dominated the evolution of animals. So I would say that now, even things like plants, that, that, that locomotory imperative is, is still writ large. Uh, I was actually particularly struck by some of your arguments in the book that talk about how movement affects our brain. Could you maybe elaborate on an example like that? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, the, the example I always like to use to kick this one off is um, sea squirts, uh, which are invertebrates. I mean, they're pretty nondescript things. They have filter-feeding bags. They've got a couple of siphons. These little jelly-like blobs you'll find around the rocky shore. 
Um, they're actually among our closest living invertebrate relatives. So, no, this, us being we vertebrates, uh, they are our closest invertebrate relatives. Um, and when they're a larva, they have a rudimentary brain uh, with a spinal cord, um, a kind of very basic version of a spinal uh, column, and they swim like a little fish, um, sort, of, sort of by beating that tail back and forth. Um, then they swim down to the seabed, they glue themselves in place, and they don't need to move anymore, so they digest their brains. Oh. Um, sorry, there was, a, there was a big clash here. <laughs> did, did, you, did you register that? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So they swim to the, the, the seabed, they glue themselves in place, and because they don't need to move anymore, they digest their brain. Because that, that's really what the brain is about. It's a computer to gather sensory information, uh, filter what's important, uh, prioritize what's left, and then feed information uh, commands to the uh, to the musculature, and that really is is what the brain uh, is all about. And yes, the sea squirts make that point very clearly that when they don't move, they don't need the brain anymore, so they just digest it. <laughs> well, well, that's kind of bizarre. Um, does that mean that we don't see like complex like neurological structures inside station most stationary things, or is this just one example? Okay, this is true. And it's, I mean, it's, it's a, so the sea squirts is one example, but there are lots and lots of examples in the animal kingdom in certain uh, marine invertebrates where they have had a, a very similar evolutionary transition that they, you know, their ancestors were able to move around, uh, but they're no longer um, able to. Um, so corals uh, would fall. Well, actually, no, that's, that's not quite right. No, that's a bit complicated because um, <laughs> the role of locomotion in, in that group. But uh, there's a, a group called the... Bryozoans, what it's worth, but um, it, it's it's a story that you see replayed over and over again. That when they uh, abandon locomotion, um, they scale down the brain. Uh, they they, I mean, they yeah they, they they more or less kind of get rid of it. They've still got a nervous system, so often still they still have to kind of you know, control the movements of feeding and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, that the idea of that central processor to gather input and then deliver. Uh, um, an effective output. That's just not necessary if you are stuck in one place. I assume that you study locomotion in your current position. What sort of, could you tell us a little bit about uh, your studies at the moment? Yeah, so well, I mean, about, I've been working entirely. I've, I've had, uh, I guess, something of a sabbatical when I've been writing this book. So no, the, the rest of the stuff was uh, was kind of put aside. But no, it's, it's pterosaurs, pterodactyls are really very much my thing. Um, yeah, yeah, so just working out how they could fly. Gotcha. Yeah, that's actually kind of interesting to me. How, how does one go back and reconstruct motion uh, from something that's long dead? You know, you can't look at an example anymore of how it moved. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that that was the great challenge. That, and obviously, you can't observe the behavior directly, so you've got to to reconstruct from the fossil evidence and, of course, bearing the the laws of aerodynamics in mind, uh, knowing what they're going to have to do. Um, I was very lucky in that I had access to some really good fossils. Um, pterosaur fossils are usually crushed flat. They're, the bones are very, very thin, as you probably expect of a large flying creature. Um, so you don't really get much uh, you know, the information about how the skeleton actually linked together because everything could have been crushed. However, there are a few places where um, the bones have kind of been preserved in their original 3D condition, and I was looking very much at those ones so I could kind of reconstruct the whole skeleton in 3D. Um, and once I got that, I then built some models to test in a wind tunnel. Um, and yeah, yeah, I discovered some you know, fairly interesting things about you know, 
novel things that they're able to do um, that you don't see in things like bats and birds because um, it's the, the wing design is very different so you're taking measurements of uh basically reconstructions from the shapes that you see in fossils yes yeah and then using that to build wind tunnel models um, to see what they're actually doing aerodynamically gotcha um but that doesn't capture anything about motion how do you capture motion in that I mean, I never really looked very much at flapping flight because I think it just became too difficult. It was too unconstrained. There were too many unknowns. Um, so I was looking mainly at gliding flight. Um, but even with that, so if you kind of have some information about the how much lift the wings are producing, how much drag they're producing, you can actually say an awful lot about their method of flight. I mean, probably to quite an ex a surprising degree, actually. Um, I mean, I worked on one family... Oh, no, the creature I studied with is a thing called Anhanguera, um, which uh, probably was roughly like today's frigate birds, um, which you find in the tropics. Now, they, they, some of them have these, now the males have this great, fantastic, inflatable red throat sack. Um, didn't reconstruct that or anything, but they have, um, they have a similar kind of um, ethos, I guess, when it comes to flight. They have very big wings for their weight. So they have to fly quite slowly, um, which means they're grounded in high winds. So if they land on the water, because it's always going to be still when they're flying, they're actually going to find it really difficult to take off again because um, they, they kind of need the assistance of gravity, but they can't fly if the, if the, if the weather's really choppy and when the waves are really high. So they can't land on the water. So they have to either take, burn, take fish on the wing or attack other birds midair and get them to disgorge uh, their prey. And this is where they're really famous. Uh, the, the frigate birds are famous aerial pirates. And yeah, you, it, it did kind of, um, I mean, this is getting a little bit fanciful and speculative now, but it did make me wonder whether these, these, this particular sort of pterodactyl, maybe they did a bit of aerial piracy as well. They, had, they, were, they, they, they suffered from the same sort of limitations and having these very big wings, but very, very small body. So that's kind of exciting. They, they, they kind of, you know, that stimulates the imagination there about you know, imagining these dog fights going on in the Cretaceous guy. So you have to, so you, so you take your hypothesis of how you think the pterodactyls might have moved, and then you're sort of testing whether or not the shapes fit that fit that motion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some might argue that it's it's never going to be that scientific because, of course, you can't verify this. You can't actually go back and say yes, they were able. To, that this is exactly how they behave. Um, but as long as there are certain predictions um, that it raises, then that's fine. Obviously, there, there's very much a prediction about where you're going to be finding these fossils, given the habitat I was just talking about. And that's generally been verified, that we, we find them over tropical seas. Um, well, we find them on tropical seabeds, um, so presuming that they've kind of crashed from above. So it, there, there are testable uh, aspects to these hypotheses. Otherwise, it would be, of course, fruitless. Otherwise, it's, it's just, just so storytelling. I see. Do you spend a lot of time working with birds then? Um... Um, not an awful lot. I mean, I, I, every now and again, I dabble in you know, perhaps looking at birds a little bit more. I mean, I've, I've, particularly the evolution of birds, because it's a very different, um, very different trajectory, evolutionary trajectory, um, because birds, having come from dinosaurs, uh, or to perhaps say, by the way, that pterodactyls are not dinosaurs. Um, many people call them dinosaurs. They're, they're probably closely related to them. But um, they evolve flight entirely separately from the birds, and, and yeah, birds obviously built their wings out of feathers, and that 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 whole the transition is has a very different flavour as a result of that. Um, and we just got some. There's been really stunning fossils coming through from China lately, 
um, like Microraptor, which had four wings. So it's got flight feathers on its legs as well as on its arms. And there's still a big question about how, how that flew. And I did a little bit of work on this using, using models. I think it's largely been superseded now, but it's, um, yeah, it's, um, it, I mean, I'm coming to the conclusion that actually if you're going to be building your wings out of feathers and evolving flight that way, then actually, in hindsight, the four wings are kind of necessary. It's to do with um, the fact that the wings are going to start off very narrow, which is not what you have if you're going down a more bat-like direction where the wings start off broad, and there are interesting stability issues uh, to do with that. So, yeah, that's something I'm hopefully going to be returning to at some point. I mean, it's uh, when we when I read through your book, there's a lot of examples, and I guess this is just the case with evolution, where you have these sort of basic limb designs or body plants, and then they get adapted for various types of movement. So do you think wings have come... So I, I guess I'm, I'm not sure. Have wings evolved multiple times throughout history? Yes, they have, yeah. Um, I mean, if you extend it to gliding, so if we, if we don't just confine it to, to fully flapping flyers, um, I can't remember the number, but it's certainly in the in the double figures. Um, they're well into the double figures, the number of times that wings have, have evolved independently. Um, so from a you know, certain point of view, it's actually a fairly, well, one might say a fairly straightforward thing to do. Now, now making the leap to fully flapping flight, that's much more difficult. Only four times that's happened with the insects, uh, the pterodactyls, the bats, and the birds. Um, but gliding has evolved many, many, many times. Um, yeah. Interesting. Oh, so there are some types of motion that are easier than to, to sort of master in the biological body plan than others. Yes, it seems to be the case. Um, so if you look at you know, swimming forms, I mean, uh, there are a lot of, I mean, swimming is a very diverse activity. It's not quite so constrained as flight. There are lots of different ways you can swim. Uh, but if you're going to do it, if you're going to be big and doing it quickly, um, then you know, the, the classic shape springs to mind, that sort of very torpedo-shaped streamlined profile. And that, again, has evolved multiple times in various different groups. Obviously, we've got the dolphins and whales, which look strikingly like some fish. Uh, then the, the extinct ichthyosaurs, which look like dolphins, basically. Um, so that, that uh, again, has happened many, many times. And I think it, it, I really kind of look out for these examples of convergent evolution um, when it comes to locomotion, because it really does, I think, help to make the point that there's only certain ways you can do it properly and they move well. Um, so you end up with lots of different creatures converging on the same solution. And this is the, this idea of the need to move well, dominating the form of, of life on Earth. Um, could you speak a little bit about how you think that uh, cars and some of our alternative forms of transit are now driving our evolution, if at all? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's. I think. Um, I mean, uh, I, I've become quite interested in the psychological impact of locomotion, um, in, particularly with regard to to humans. Um, but it's this interesting thing that when you have um, an organism, a creature with a nervous system uh, that can respond moment by moment, obviously far far quicker than the genes themselves are going to be able to kind of mutate and change generation by generation. Um, it kind of changes the rules of the evolutionary game a bit because what it means is that the, the way to high Darwinian fitness is um, to build a body which can react in, a, in an appropriate way uh, and use its, you know, its locomotory machine uh, to its best advantage. And uh, one of the upshots of this, particularly once, well, once consciousness is on the scene, 
obviously that's a big question about when consciousness appeared and uh, who is conscious apart from humans. But obviously humans most certainly are. But if we're conscious and um, the, the genes kind of have to persuade us um, to do what's right um, by them, um, you know, do the things which are going to give us a higher lifetime reproductive success. Um, and part of that is making us enjoy those things, those activities which are going to benefit us in terms of lifetime reproductive success. And of course, because locomotion is so important in selective terms, that means that we would expect um, to be, quotes, programmed uh, to enjoy moving around. Um, and I think there's, there's abundant evidence that this is true. Um, I mean, the runner's high is one rather specific case in point. Um, but if you look at a particular lot of um, traditional cultures, um, where exploring one's environment under your own steam uh, is an enormously important aspect of their lives. And it, it's, it's an aspect that they, they draw tremendous meaning from. That's how they define their identity. It's how they connect with their ancestors, how they find out about themselves, you know, all sorts of things. Um, this is like a, it's curious to see what. Sorry, sorry, say again. Oh, I was just <laughs> that just makes me think about uh, how there's this little North American um, adolescent trope of traveling to Europe. <laughs> is that is yeah. that somehow an yes. incarnation of this locomotion? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. No, I've, I've not thought of that, but I think that's absolutely. It's, it's like the rite of passage. It's like you know, the, um, the 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 journey you take to discover yourself. I mean, it's almost become a cliche now, but I think that's, it, it, it's it's kind of true. Um, and it's 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 a shame that now now we've sort of embraced locomotive technology to such an extent that although obviously we're still able to move, it's it's, it's a kind of there's something a bit wrong in the in the way that works um, that you no know, our senses aren't immersed in the act of locomotion quite as as much as they are when we're just kind of wandering around. We have to stick to the roads. We, we we're not able to kind of be quite so free in our exploration. And I think this is actually having quite a serious psychological impact on us i mean for all sorts of reasons not just direct they're indirect ones as well uh quite apart from the fact that they kill you know, one and a quarter million people every year and uh, contribute to air pollution and obesity yeah so obviously as that, so yeah my 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 number came from a 2010 study so i imagine it's probably changed a bit uh since then but um yeah, and it's interesting that if you look at you know, certain aspects of particularly adventure tourism and you know, the, the travels to Europe are part of that, I think it's this, what we're seeing there is, is a yearning to recapture something which I think uh, too many of us have lost um, to to kind of discover the world um, on our own two feet. And I think um, it's, 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 a, it's a kind of noxious influence that I think we need to push back against and it's it's one we all know. And when 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 we're toddlers, when we're you know, very young, we all do this. I mean, this is how we learn how to walk is is by exploring our environment. So it still kind of forms a very important part of our early lives. But um, it's 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 so rare these days that we get the opportunity to 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 kind of hang on to that. And I think that's it's a really it's a desperate shame. Could you describe maybe your commute to work every day? <laughs> Well, I, I either walk or cycle. I'm very lucky. And I, uh, I mean, I don't own a car. In fact, I don't even have a driving license. <laughs> um, uh, there aren't many places I'll be able to do that. So, um, yeah, I live in Cambridge, um, which is a nice small town. and I live a, a, a mile away from work. So, yeah, I'll either walk in or cycle in. And uh, Cambridge is, um, is I'm, I would say, probably the cycling capital of, of, of the UK. Um, it's nothing like as good as it is in places like Denmark or the Netherlands. 
um, and there, and there is a very active cycling lobby that's just trying to get the the, the, the city designed a little bit better with with you know, cyclists and, and pedestrians in mind. Um, but it, it's 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 a place I do enjoy living for that reason that it's you, you can get around on your own two feet and under uh, your own steam. Obviously, if you're on a bike, you're still under your own steam, even if you've got wheels. What do you think? Uh, what do you think you want people to get from reading your book? Like, how do you think this knowledge is going to help people live their life or think about things in their own lives? Yeah, well, I mean, I don't want to dictate too much, but um, I, I want to give people a fresh way of looking at the world. I want to feel. I mean, I, I think when you appreciate. Uh, how much the need to move has kind of shaped our own evolutionary history. Uh, I think it gives one a greater sense, perhaps, of self-understanding. Um, particularly because there's, there's one sort of very important aspect of um, of this whole story, which is that um, it's very easy when you're thinking of Darwinian evolution um, to uh, to kind of get a rather fractured um, picture of how it works. That it's that no, the organisms. When I'm, I'm borrowing Tim Ingold's words now, who's uh, who written a lot about um, the movement, um, that an, an organism, a creature, exists solely to be itself, that it doesn't pass on its experiences as such. It, you know, it, it's all that it's the genes jumping from generation to generation that it, its being is is kind of self-contained. And actually, in the light of locomotion, that point of view actually proves to be rather, rather false. Because I mean, for the very simple reason that if um, if an animal, a creature that's moving around, um, it gets to experience a new environment, um, and so it, and it has to then experience that new environment before it's able to adapt to it, um, and uh, it has to try out a different way of moving before it's able to adapt to that. So it means that when we kind of look at ourselves, at our bodies, um, it, we, we sort of become an embodiment of those journeys. It's um, these these journeys that go back four billion years into the deep past these decisions taken by our ancestors you know what they did has shaped who we are and i, I personally find that a really powerful way of connecting with not only you know, kind of our own ancestral past but with the living world uh, that surrounds us it's this is what's because as we kind of look at our, our ancestors we we find you know the further back we go um the more those ancestors are shared with um you know, other animals and other other creatures uh, that are around us so i think it, we we have a really potent means of connecting with the rest of the living world um so i'd you know, i'd love readers to kind of you know, take that away and maybe kind of explore their own relationship um mm-hmm. to the living world um <laughs> yeah that's amazing it's nice it's nice to always get some perspective i think because mm. Uh, you know, like science, you spend a lot of time studying these very particular things, and then it's nice to know that it can be related. Oh, and I think the book does a good job of taking people through a lot of different yeah. uh, scientific examples. Um, you know, they should be able to get something like that out of it. <laughs> yeah, and just, you know, just to, to kind of realize that we are locomotory creatures and that this is not a side, you know, it, it, it's a side of our being that's easy to neglect and forget. You know, we, we concentrate on, on the, the pursuits of the mind and I'm completely guilty of this myself, but I think, you know, the, engaging a bit more with our bodies, um, I think is, um, can only, can only be a good thing. So you know, if, if I manage to you know, awaken that prospect in the readers, that'll be, that'll be wonderful. <laughs> uh, is there any sort of future project we should be looking out uh, from you, 
Um, oh, yes. Yeah. So the, I mean, I have a, a couple of other book ideas in mind. I need to talk to my agent first before, <laughs> before I start deciding on that. I mean, I think, yeah, yeah, I, I probably will leave it there. I mean, there are, I've written a couple of, I've written a play in the past as well, and that's, that's perhaps an aspect I'm hoping to explore. There's something a little bit more creative, a bit more imaginative, uh, but we shall see. Yeah, yeah, lots of options. So uh, this is the section of the show that we're calling Grokatron 5000. We've revived it from the past, and basically uh, a lucky caller into our radio show has a chance to win uh, a copy of your book, Restless Creatures, uh-huh. uh, should you be able to answer three of these four multiple-choice questions. Are you ready to okay. participate? Yeah, yeah. Oh, God. I'm, <laughs> I'm worried now, but uh, go ahead. <laughs> All right. Um, so since your book is about locomotion and movies, we've chosen the topic of movies – uh, as, <laughs> as as the theme for these questions. Okay. So okay. Uh, there is a number uh, for mathematicians, the Erdős number, which is the amount of degrees of separation you have from a famous mathematician named Paul Erdős. Yep. And in acting, there's a number called the Bacon number, which is the number of degrees you have from, uh, in the screen credit, Kevin the Kevin Bacon. So you add those yep, together yep. and you can get uh, an Erdős Bacon number. Uh, so the question is, is which one of these actresses has an Erdős Bacon number of seven? And uh, as a hint, she actually has a peer-reviewed paper. Uh, it was under a different name, but uh, or uh, under a different last name, called the frontal lobe activation during object permanence data from near infrared oh spectroscopy. <laughs> the options oh, are right. the options okay. are Natalie Portman, Megan Fox, uh-huh. Meryl Streep. So sorry, sorry, what was the second one? Megan Fox. Well, Megan Fox. Yeah. Meryl Streep or Angelina Jolie? Ooh. Um, uh, what was the first one again? Natalie Portman, Megan Natalie Fox, Portman. Meryl Streep, Angelina Jolie. She changed her name, uh, so that may be yeah. as well. <clears throat> oh, I'm, I'm just going to be a blind. I'm going to say Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep. Unfortunately, it was Natalie Portman. <laughs> ah, <stop. laughs> All right. Uh, we're being fascinated with the way things move, like aliens and things like that. So there's a lot of yep. different really cool alien locomotion out there. Um, mm-hmm. Which one of the following movies with uh, crazy aliens was not directed by James Cameron? Was it okay. The okay. Abyss, The Thing, Avatar, or Aliens? Uh, that is... Uh, the thing. Not yes, that is correct. That's John Carpenter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Uh, uh-huh. In <laughs> uh, people make uh, the transition to doing science and movies quite often. Uh huh. I'm in 2014. The blockbuster science fiction film Interstellar was developed yep. based on the ideas of this Caltech physicist. Was it Albert Einstein, Kip Thorne? Stephen Hawking or Carl Sagan? Um, was it Carl Sagan? Uh, actually, it was Kip Thorne. Damn, damn. Carl Sagan was contact, wasn't he? Damn it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, and finally, the last question is, uh, Sunspring is a recently released short science fiction film. Uh, uh-huh. What makes this film uh, unique? Was it because it was written by monkeys on keyboards? <laughs> was it crowdsourced from Twitter? Is it written by an AI algorithm? Or is it from Morse code interpretations from infants kicking? 
I'm going to go for the crowdsourcing. <laughs> Actually, that's incorrect as well. It was an AI algorithm that did that. Oh, <laughs> oh dear, I did terribly. Uh, all right. well, uh, <laughs> no to, book for me. <laughs> we'll try to revive it and give your book out anyways, maybe in a, in yeah. a different sort of competition. <laughs> yeah, sure. Thanks for being such a good sport. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, and it was really great having you. Um, uh, as I said, we've been talking with uh, Matt Wilkinson. His book, Restless Creatures, uh, is just a great book going through different examples of the way things move and ultimately tying it back to a philosophy of looking at the world, uh, locomotion. Thanks very much. Great. Thank <laughs> you. That's, that's really good fun. Thanks for that.